invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Song of Songs. Song of Songs. Specifically today we're going to be taking a look at verses 8 through 17 of chapter 2. You remember the key to finding Song of Songs is to head for Psalms and then turn right. So, um, in any event, before we read the Word of God, let's seek His face and answer His song. Sovereign Lord, we are so thankful that You have not left us in the darkness, Your will. You have given us Your Word. You have given us stories. You have given us histories. And You give us poetry, beautiful poetry, that expresses eternal truths teaches us things about the relationships that we should have here on earth, and our relationship to you, and most importantly, our relationship to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, therefore, that as we read Song of Solomon, we would remember that in this idealized relationship, we see not just a picture of the way that earthly love should progress within the church, but also a picture of our relationship to Christ, and certain fundamental truths about it. Help us not to lose sight of either. Help us to remember that if we come to this it is to be changing us, molding us, thinking about marriage and about our Savior and His work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Shulamite, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle. For a young stag, behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. My brothers, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. The jewel might, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies to her beloved, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved. And be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethlehem. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the things about our society that you note as you get older, or perhaps because of older, is how we are obsessed with making everything as quick as possible. Everything has to go at warp speed, or we are dissatisfied. I was reminded of that as I was flying to an island in the Caribbean. I'm in a tube at 33,000 feet going at over 500 miles an hour, and I'm irritated because my internet is slow. Okay, it's a ridiculous situation. We've gotten past the point where we, we expect to drive up to a window and have an order delivered to us in a few minutes. Now we want to be able to order it online, and if it's not ready by the time we show up, we're upset. Or if the Uber driver who's bringing it to us is a little late, we're also upset. We expect everything very, very quickly. We don't expect organic development to go like anything fast. I was speaking a while back, a long time ago actually now, to a landscaper. And uh, one of the changes that he had 
I noticed was he said that uh, people wanted things that were easy to maintain. They didn't want to do a lot of yard work because the idea of gardening, actually going out and planting gardens and then weeding and doing things like that is no longer appealing to people. And he said one of the things that he noticed was it was only, uh, the funny thing was it's only older people in these days by and large or uh, country folks who uh, expect to be able to pass on their house to the next generation who plant fruit trees. Because the fruit tree will not mature in time for the average American family, not fast enough. It won't begin to produce stock. And in any event, the going out and picking the fruit off the tree when it comes is, is too difficult. We don't like that, that idea that things are supposed to ripen, that they're supposed to progress organically, that we have to wait, we have to put off or delay gratification. We want everything all at once. We can see the way that that's affected the family, for instance, in our habits of eating. The average American family no longer... I remember when I was a, as a kid growing up, we used to gather around the table and we would have these these debates about uh, history and things like that. My parents were not, uh, were not evangelicals or Christians, but nonetheless, I, I learned much about uh, history and, and various friends and, and my wife uh, were terribly intimidated by the conversations about If you didn't know the, the lineage of the kings of England, you were in trouble, for instance, during, during lunch. She can testify to that. It was, uh, it was an intimidating experience. But what were we doing? We were forming bonds that, that last. Um, we weren't sitting there, wolfing down our food, standing up and staring at a phone, swiping, going up and down and doing things like that, expecting everything to develop on our schedule the way that we wanted it to. One of the things that's supposed to develop gradually, that's supposed to develop organically, is the relationship between men and women. It's supposed to develop over a period of time. That's the way that the Lord designed it. And it's supposed to mature. It's supposed to be something that becomes beautiful and sweet, and it's supposed to have various phases. One of my favorite books on, uh, on the process of courtship, written by Rick Phillips and his uh, wife, Holding Hands, Holding Hearts, talks about how there's a gradual development in, in touching, for instance. You start with the hand, and then gradually you become more intimate. You move to the face, for instance. That's much more intimate when, than touching the hand. But today we have a society that expand, uh, expects immediate intimacy very quickly after meeting somebody. This is not the way that that God developed it or designed it, and it produces terrible effects. Well, here in the Song of Songs, we see a natural cycle developing, and I hope you manage to see it. And not only do we see it in the way that the relationship between man and wife should be developing, but also the way the relationship between the believer and Christ, or the bride and the bridegroom in the church sense, should be developing as well. Now, we saw before, just to recap briefly, how before... Uh, the Shulamite had wanted the king to notice her. She was aware of him. He was comely, he was beautiful, he was attractive, and so on. But she was afraid initially that she would be unattractive to him because unlike the pampered women of the palace that he was surrounded by who spent all of their time trying to stay out of the sun, covering themselves with expensive perfumes and cosmetics and so on, she had been working in the vineyard and had been burned dark by the sun. She desired him... But she feared also that somebody so far above her in station could not possibly desire her. He, however, answered that he had already noticed her. That his love had been fixed on her before she began to love him. And of course we see then the relationship between the Christian and Christ. We love him because he first loved us. And he does not fix his attention upon us because we are comely and attractive in the world sense, beautiful in the way that the world defines things. 
but there is something in us that he desires that he will mature within us, that he will create for us. He will adorn us himself and make us something incredibly beautiful. And so she is attracted to him. It was his desire to make her his. And then we go through that process where she is lovesick. She desires to be his, but she doesn't desire just to be his for time. She desires to be his forever, permanently to sit under his shade, to have his banner of love over her, to be protected by him, to be loved, to be adored, to be provided for, and to be always in his heart, the one whom he loves, the apple of his eye. That is what she wants. That is what she, she longs for. But there is this warning note that was sounded before. Do not stir up love before it pleases. This is something that must develop naturally. It must come about over a period, a process of maturing of their love. And it is not yet time. We're still in the courtship phase at this point in the poem. She is still, for instance, living with her family. She is still in her own room. We see this picture, you remember, of him um, uh, gazing through the lattice. But we'll get to that in a moment. The, the question remains, though, when will that time come? And she, her heart leaps when she sees her lover coming to her. The king is coming. She sees him as a gazelle, as a stag, leaping uh, towards her. His, his obvious desire is for her. And it makes him, him run quickly. And she loves everything about him. It is amazing how when people fall in love, for instance, they no longer see people as who they are. They become the idealized versions. Uh, I've said it before, but when I've, uh, been, um, when I've been doing premarriage counseling with people, just the way they look at each other, and then they, you know, you, you say, you raise questions designed to bring up possibilities and difficulties later on in the marriage. They're like, how could there ever be a difficulty with someone this perfect? <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> okay. But uh, he comes to her, leaping on the mountains, running towards her, and he tells her that the time has come for her to come away with him. The winter is past, the time when there was no fruition, when there was no world, and uh, there was no growth. Uh, now the vineyards are, are full of fruit, the flowers are, are bursting forth and ripening, even the spring rains have passed, it's no longer soggy out, everything is ready, but... While she still affirms her commitment to him, she is not yet ready to, to be his entirely. So mourning has not yet, uh, in one sense, dawned on the consummation of their love, as Ian Hugo puts it so well. Now, uh, <laughs> there's this, this picture of him leaping like a gazelle or a young stag. Uh, those of you who remember young love will know about that. There's that sense of insane urgency. It is sometimes difficult to get a teenager to get up, to clean their room, to do a chore. But uh, it used to be the case, the phone would ring, and, you know, boom, they were out of bed, they left. It could be my beloved, I must not be allowed to rent the phone to ring more than once before I answer. Hello, my beloved, what are you, you know, that kind of thing. You don't say that, hello. But um, there was that longing, and now, of course, it's any time a text goes off when they're in love. Is it him? Is it him? You know, it's Sam. How dare you, Sam? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. There's that, that desire to, to be near them, to think about them all the time. 
it, it used to be, you know, that uh, things weren't that urgent in your life. Now everything is urgent. One of the things, of course, about young love is that urgency can produce some pretty dire consequences. And there is a sense in which there's this idea that this love, that it doesn't come to maturity, that it doesn't come to fruition, that the world ends at that point in time. And that's not the case. Now, uh, all is well when the beloved is near in the world. Uh, John Milton pictured the, the scene in the garden when Eve is speaking to Adam and she says, With thee conversing, I forget all time, all seasons and their change, all please alike. The world outside is as nothing to me. It's just our world together as we're communing together. If it could be raining and still, it would be sunny and fair because you're here. Love reminds us of paradise in the way before the fall. And that's a good thing. But uh, here we have this, this vision of him coming. He's outside the, uh, the wall of their home. And he's gazing up at her window. He's gazing up at her lattice. Incidentally, at this point in time, windows didn't actually have glass. Uh, window pane glass had not yet been developed. So he used to make wooden lattice works. The idea was you would at least have lattice that would stop um, you know, animals or birds or so on from getting into the house. It wouldn't do much to stop insects, unfortunately, but nonetheless. And also, it would, pro- it would produce a little bit of a privacy screen. The, uh, the Muslims took this to a very high art. Uh, because they didn't want people to be able to see the women in the household. Uh, so they would uh, develop these highly artistic lattices. I don't know how artistic the Israelite lattices were, but this is the idea. So he is gazing up at her window, and you should be, I think, probably reminded, because I'm sure that Shakespeare is probably influenced by this, of that scene from Romeo and Juliet. You remember, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. <laughs> His east, and Juliet is the son that is gazing up at his beloved. And she comes out, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? And so on, the mutual love that cannot yet be consummated because she has not yet left her family. Uh, the winter, though, is past, and you have this idea that the spring has come. It's a time of fertility of the land. And that, uh, of course, the poem is filled with these double entendres, explaining forward to uh, the time of fertility now for them. Uh, the time has come. We're old enough. Let's get married. Let's have children. The, the blooms are on the vines. You have the sweetness of the ripening figs, all of these things. Uh, and the, the idea is there's an urgency, but don't let the urgency press too much. Things have to progress normally. They have to progress from one stage to another. But there is this affirmation. He uniquely values her. He wants her to be his but not just his for a moment in time, for a night, or a week, or a month, but forever. And she wants to be his, but it is not yet time. And so he, he pictures her as this dove amongst the cleft of the rocks, beautiful, to be desired, and yet uh, inaccessible. You can't get up, and you can't grab the dove. So he talks about the fact that that the, the blooms are on the vineyard, and uh, obviously there's a connection between not just the vineyard being a picture of the church, but also a picture of the young woman. She spoke of her own body as a vineyard that she had neglected. That's why she had been burned in the sun. But uh, he desires now to enter uh, into this vineyard. They're physically ready for a relationship. Uh, and as I said, there's a constant double entendre. But suddenly you have this mention from her brothers of the foxes. The little foxes that spoil the grapes. What is going on here? 
They have commentators uh, giving you, if you're reading the, the commentators who want to stay entirely away from the analogy of, of human physical love, and want to go entirely simply to the spiritualized relationship between Christ and the church, uh, the foxes are inevitably their, their sins, their false prophets, so the things that come in and spoil the vineyard of the Lord, and spoil uh, that. So uh, men like Matthew Henry and Spurgeon and uh, JFB think that they are the sins that ruin the vineyard, uh, that destroy the fruits of the church, the little foxes or the jackals that would break in and eat the fruit off the tree, off the vine just as it was becoming sweet. JFB says this is that's Jameson Fawcett Brown incidentally says that these are the crafty false teachers who uh, stir up spiritual pride and uncharitableness, these uh, sins that break fellowship, that ruin the sweetness of the vineyard. Williamson, uh, though, a modern commentator, G.I. Williamson says, uh, I believe they are irritations in the relationship. She does something and it really irritates them. Now, how can that happen when you're having a courtship and you're falling in love, but it happens? The things that make for difficulties in that relationship. Most modern commentators uh, believe these uh, little foxes are, it's an analogy for discontents, uh, problems of life that could possibly ruin a relationship, ruin the sweetness of it. And her brothers call upon Solomon to catch these little foxes before they ruin that budding relationship. Now, one of the things I want you to notice here in the song is this seems to indicate that when it comes to her household, it's her brothers who are taking care of her. They're the ones who have authority over her. This would seem to indicate that the father in the family is gone. We also don't see any mention of her mother at any point. So it may be just her brothers who are taking care of her, and as, as brothers should be. They're protective. The brothers are mentioned, but there's never this father, so therefore I think... That's the idea behind this, that the brothers who are now taking care of their sisters. Sometimes brothers can be overly protective of their sisters. That used to be the case. Uh, now, unfortunately, they're a little underprotected, I think, uh, in our society. However, uh, in spite of, of that, what, um, what's being said here is make sure you're ready. And the family should exercise that, that insight, that... Um, that desire to, to mold the love that's occurring between their children, whether it's a father taking care of his, his daughter or giving advice to his son to make sure that they don't progress too quickly, that they don't hold back unnecessarily, that they don't allow things that should be uh, dealt with early on in the relationship uh, to, to get out of hand. One of the things that I always say when I'm talking to people in marriage counseling is I would rather do marriage counseling on this side of the wedding than on the other side of the wedding. I'd rather be dealing with the red flags before they come up rather than dealing with the effects of them running to the top of the flagpole after the couple has been married. Mm -hmm. So these are things that should be thought about. These are things that should be discussed. And often in the middle of the, you know, the, the dewy-eyed, isn't he wonderful, isn't she wonderful, you can ask a question that they've never even thought of. And each of them has wildly different answers. Like, I raised it before, where are you going to go for your Thanksgiving dinner? And each of them says, my parents' house. And you're like, well, they're divided by 500 miles. How are you going to do that? <laughs> yeah. uh, and it had never occurred to them that they would spend the Thanksgiving without their mother and their father being at the table. Or their uncle, or their brothers, and so on. It's an entirely new life that they have not yet begun to think through because they are so overwhelmed by love. Now, although the, there is no consummation yet, 
There is still this emphasis on my beloved is mine and I am my beloved. There is a, there's a betrothal that's going on here. That they intend to marry this person. But there has been no change of location. She has moved out of her house and into his and so on. And uh, this is a strong indication, all of these things, that this poem is set within the bounds of the covenant community. This is not simply erotic literature from the ancient Near East, where they would have immediately gone, gone to, to describe lovemaking. It's, it's about love within the bounds that God has set, the bounds of marriage. And this is one of the uh, wonderful things that the Bible teaches us about, that there's, uh, there's a holding off on the awakening of the physical side of the relationship that is actually good. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. This is saying that there's a time when we need to be subduing the, the, the sexual passions that God has put into us. Uh, well, I've said before, and I, keep, I need to keep banging this drum, sex is not wrong. Sex is not evil. There are churches that have taught that sex isn't necessarily evil. It's not. Actually, it's something good that God has given it's something that uh, it really emphasizes the idea of the one flesh relationship, doesn't it? It's the greatest intimacy that's meant to be established in this world. But it's only supposed to be enjoyed within the bounds of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's where it's supposed to occur. And there it is an incredible blessing. It is one of the greatest blessings on this side of eternity. And God uses marriage and the sexual relationship as a way of pointing forward to the relationship, the even greater communion that will exist between the believer and Christ in heaven. There, our communion is even more deep, even more natural. There is this idea that we will know just as we are known. And there's an emphasis in the Bible constantly on the dangers of premarital sexual activity. That if we ignite the flame before it's ready, the fire burns out of control. And it creates terrible, terrible damage. So, what's being emphasized are the wise reasons for waiting. Now, this is so terribly different from the society that we live in at the moment. I mean, I can just uh, point out to you that it is very common within our society to put the honeymoon first and the wedding later. Often, much, much later, after many years of testing the waters, and maybe we'll get married, maybe we'll finally go swimming. Many years ago, uh, in the last century, uh, when I was a child, I can still remember this. To have a child out of wedlock, those of you who are almost as ancient as me may remember this. To have a child out of wedlock was almost unheard of. It was something you whispered about. It was something that you know people would, they would shake their head and so on. In 1964, for instance, just to give you statistics, uh, out of wedlock births, 3.1% of whites and 24% of blacks. In 1990, it had risen to 18% of whites and 64% of blacks. And now it's roughly 40% right across the board, uh, with 28% of white children and 70.1% of black children born out of wedlock. And interestingly enough, one of the things that has caused this skyrocket is the decrease in the willingness of our nation to, or our culture, I should say, to accept the idea that there is something called sin out there, that it's possible to, to sexually sin, um, and also the absolute end of shame. There is no more shame in our culture. We do not feel shame over the things that we've done. Uh, in cultures, though, where there is still a, a strong sense of shame present, unmarried births are not so out of control, for instance, among Asians, 
uh, within the United States even, it's still only among uh, about 12% of children in the Asian community are born out of wedlock. There is still a great shame principle, but shame without redemption, shame without the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ can be equally damaging. In many Asian cultures, for instance, with a very strong shame culture, it's one or none on how many kids you're going to have. And so many of the pregnancies that begin end up not being born because abortion intervenes. In places like China and South Korea and so on, that is a very, very common thing. Even amongst married couples, no, we only have, we're only going to have one child. Or perhaps we can't afford to have any children at all. So any pregnancies that begin will be terminated and never discussed. That is an awful, awful thing to happen. Children are being murdered, and even worse, you're not allowed to talk about it. It's something that you keep secret. You don't discuss these things. But in the United States, it's, it's gone. The shame culture has disappeared. There are things that happen now that would never happen to a pastor in the 19th century. So, for instance, um, I can't tell you how many times uh, I have had people come up to me and say something like, Hi, this is my fiancé, and these are our kids. Which millennium? The the idea that you would do that with a pastor, these are the children that I fathered out of wedlock, is something that would have been, you know, people in the 19th century, 19th century rather, would have been, you know, say what? For me as a Brit, sometimes it's embarrassing. (laughs) I still get that kind of, what do I say now exactly? Don't say something sarcastic. You know, that's, um, that's what's going through my head. Uh, today, for instance, if I suggest online in one of the general Fayetteville chat groups, I sometimes forget this, that my, um, my entire Fayetteville, or rather, my entire Facebook following has very much self-curated itself. The number of unbelievers, for instance, that I'm friends with, and keep in mind, I haven't unfriended anybody virtually. My, my wife can tell you this. You send me a friend request, I'll generally speaking, I'll always click yes. And even if you say offensive things, as long as you're not swearing at a storm on my wall, I'm not going to get rid of you. But people have unfriended me. Relatives, neighbors, so on. Because I keep talking about the Christian stuff. And they don't like my worldview. They don't like what I have to say. But then I'll say something in a, a, a general Fayetteville chat. Something like, watch out Cumberland, which I would definitely advise you to avoid if you possibly can. Uh, and I'll make a comment that implies that people, you know, probably should have a job, or that uh, getting married before having kids is a good idea. And man, the vitriol that people will pour on you when you make a statement like that. How dare you judge not? You Pharisee. I can't believe you're a pastor, and so on. How unloving. Why? And if you point out that it's not loving to have kids outside of marriage, did you know that? If you really want to stunt or make your child's development difficult. Have a child before you've graduated high school, for instance, and before you're married. And that child will find it very, very difficult to ever get out of the middle class or make it into the middle class, uh, more to the point. Statistically, single-parent households are the worst off in every single measurement in the United States. It is not loving to raise a child that way. Of course, it's even less loving to put a child to death rather than raise them that way. But nonetheless, it is not a good thing. We have forgotten that. So, 
What is part of the cause of that? Well, it's something that's implied in the poem. It's the exponentially growing lack of fathers expressing that restraining role. The brothers are expressing the restraining role within the Song of Solomon, but watching over their daughters. This idea that before I hand her over to you, I need to know certain things. You need to have proven certain things. Certain necessary hurdles, certain natural development has occurred. It is becoming more and more quaint and unlikely that before a marriage takes place, the man will go and ask the father, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? That was the traditional handoff, so to speak. We still, at a marriage ceremony, don't we? we who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the answer, of course, used to be, I did. Now we're a little more egalitarian. Her brother and I do. But still, there was this acknowledgement that there was a moving from one household, one oversight group, one care community, one family, to another. But now, as we have more and more children who are born out of wedlock or who were born and into intact families that subsequently divorce, there's a lack of fatherly input. There's a lack of, of restraint. There's a lack of input, oversight, care. There's a lack of, of, I'm going to take care of you until the point at which I hand you off to somebody who I'm reasonably persuaded will also love you, adore you, and spiritually care for your soul in the way that it should be. That kind of thing is not going on. Marriage, really understood properly, was always a covenant contract. The idea was that uh, the father looked after his daughter until that day when he passed her off in that covenant relationship to the headship of another man who would watch over her and love her and care for her in the way that she needed to be cared for. Because he understood that it was not his role. It's not our role as fathers to hold on to our kids for as long as we possibly can. It is our role to raise them up, to found families of their own. And that should be something that's happened. And there should be love. There should be desire. There should be all of these wonderful elements that we see in the poem going on. But it should all happen subsumed under this biblical model of courtship that's being spelled out for us that will produce the best relationships. This long process, believe it or not, this slow bake, if I can put it this way, produces the best results. Barbecue that you try to make quickly doesn't work out very well. It's a long, slow cooking process. The best marriages I tend to find have that element as well. Now, that's not to say that a marriage that comes you know, relatively quickly can't be uh, a wonderful thing uh, with God's help as well. But generally speaking, there's supposed to be that organic growth process. God's way is the best way, the biblical pattern of courtship and growth. Now, there's an analogy to the church in all of this within the poem. We remember that marriage points us to Christ. Song of Songs points us to the believer's relationship to Christ. What is one of the ways that we see this? Well, obviously the marriage feast of the Lamb of God is something that, that hasn't taken place yet. We don't have the fullness of consummation yet. We have the relationship. We have the betrothal. We have the, we've been ransomed. The bride price has been paid and so on. But, but we have not yet come to that point, that wonderful point of the wedding feast that we're working towards. But in a very real way, the church is supposed to be preparing, as fathers are supposed to be preparing their daughters for marriage, the church is supposed to be in the process of preparing people for the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're supposed to be getting people ready through that process of progressive sanctification we spoke about 
for eternity and for the joy of celebration when the entire church, the church no longer militant, the church triumphant, gathered in heaven, is in the process of that, that marriage meal, enjoying Jesus face to face, where we're united to Him, never again to be apart, no longer eyes through a glass darkly, but face to face, dwelling in the presence of the Lamb, bowing down before Him, and having that unending Sabbath, that beautiful worship that shall go on into eternity. That's what we're going towards. But there's a process of preparing the people of the church, preparing the bride for that. And it's something that just as in restaurants, we no longer want a long sit-down experience with the, you know, the interchange. One of the things that I noticed is I was, you know, I, I have been noticing, but I've been flying, is another consequence of the wanting everything and immediately wanting to be able to interact on our phone and so on is, I can remember flying, believe it or not, I'm old enough to do this, I can remember flying in the 1970s when you dressed up. One of the reasons why you dressed up was because it was a social occasion. And you know what you did when you were on the plane? It was amazing. Do you know what you actually did? You talked. <laughs> you met people. You were stuck on a plane with them for eight hours. You might as well get to know them. Sometimes they were dumb. Just fun, you know. Nonetheless, you had an opportunity. It was wonderful for Christians. Because, of course, you could evangelize in the midst of that. And you had a captive audience. Because you weren't allowed to change seats, you know. This person thinks all you about Jesus. Or doesn't have another seat. <laughs> that didn't happen. So it was, it was a, a social experience. Those social experiences have been done away with. Within churches, the amazing thing also is there is a gradually lowering social experience as well. If you go into a modern church, modern megachurch in particular, you'll notice it's all performance oriented. So where are the lights? The lights are on stage. How about back here? It's dark. Generally, it's dark because you've got the audience and the thing that they're doing. It's not a congregation entering into worship. It's a worship performance playing out before them. And the social links, especially because the church is so large, it's very difficult. Oh, well, you'll get your social time when you meet with them at their houses later on. But it's very easy to be in one of those mega churches and not to form any deep, resonating relationships. Joy can attest to the truth of this. We had been at uh, one of the larger churches in the PCA for many years. I was actually teaching the RC School video Bible study. I was in the path uh, to go to seminary. I met with the session to come under care. And one day, as we're walking out, an assistant pastor asked us, Are you new to the church? No. We've been here for several years. We've had conversations. You've just got so many people in here, you've forgotten about them. It happens. He didn't have a bad memory. He just had so many people to juggle. And it made relationships difficult and not very intimate. And so there's been a movement away from organic growth within the church. It's more like fast food. It's a performance. It's, it's done. Everybody claps. You hear the music you want. You hear the encouraging message. Then you leave. Like a shotgun. <laughs> You're scattered back into the world. You get what you want, and then you leave. And as a result, also... There's no organic growth amongst the people. It is very uncommon within the megachurch structure to have a membership class any longer. There's no interview with the session to determine whether this person really is a Christian before, for instance, baptizing them. Yeah. I have actually spoken to pastors who tell me, I say, how do you do baptism? Well, we have baptism Sundays, and basically anybody who wants to be a baptized comes up front. I'm like, you don't talk to them? 
He's like, well, we asked him to they believe Jesus. You know? <laughs> like, okay, that's a start. Um, but there's no parting with sin, and there's also no church discipline being exercised. And there's no covenant. People do not stand up and take membership vows. They do not say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And so as a result, there's this great deal of declension, a, a great deal of apostasy, a great deal of, of making the church into something that maybe 3,000 you know, miles wide, but it's only three inches deep. There's a book that's been written recently, an interesting interview. Um, it's called The De-Churching of America. And um, it pointed out that there's a, a great de-churching going on, and mostly it's, believe it or not, occurring... Uh, the de-churching that occurred before amongst uh, the liberal community has mostly wound down. Those, those people, you know, they're already out of the church. There's an amazing de-churching going on amongst the American middle and lower classes, the people who would generally be conservative, people who you would expect to hey, make uh, something like this, who would identify as populists, who would vote Trump, but they're not in the church anymore. And their family structures, they're not intact any longer. We have a populist movement where there's no, there's no Christianity. Um, and these are the people who used to go to the big megas, but no longer go. They're leaving. And they're having children out of wedlock increasingly as well. And the authors, uh, in the interview that I was listening to, I, I ordered their book, but I hadn't started it yet. They pointed out this. They said, uh, when the question was asked, what are the churches that are growing then? What are the churches that, where they're remaining firm? And they said, it's the churches where there's commitment required to be a part of the membership. It's the churches that are confessional, that have deep beliefs. It's the churches where you have that gradual, organic process of growth going on, where progressive sanctification is being emphasized, where the teaching is Bible-based, expositional, book by book, verse by verse, where it costs you to be a Christian, where church discipline can be exercised. Those are the churches that are standing fast or growing. Because that's the model that God wanted. That's the model of the bride and the bridegroom. How they're introduced and how they get to know one another. And how they begin to move towards that relationship that doesn't just last for time but for eternity. That's the model that we not only need to reinforce within the family, we discover within the family. That's the model we need in the church. Genuine, organic growth, the way that God intended as we become closer not only to God, but also closer to one another. In those churches, they also pointed out where the commitment's going on. Another thing that holds them fast is the fact that it's far more familial. The people know one another. They commune with one another. They spend time with one another. The church is large enough and has the, you know, the right demographic mix. They, they marry one another if they're not all too old yet. <laughs> You know, it happens. But brothers and sisters, that's the way it's supposed to be. Not only are we supposed to be growing closer to Christ, our own familial bonds within Christ are supposed to be growing stronger and stronger. And that's one of the reasons why we see in the book of Acts, one of the things that they did on a regular basis is they went from house to house doing what? Eating together. Breaking bread, not just at the Lord's Supper, but as they feasted together, as they sat down at a table. And nobody in the early church sat down at a table like this. See, all those wires staring at your hand. It'll be important later on. Yeah. What did they do? They, they spoke to one another. 
They knew, they knew one another. They were transparent. That's what we need to emphasize with the coming generation. We need to put the phone down. We need to stop expecting instant relationships, instant Christianity. Like instant oatmeal, it's not as good as the real thing by far. Brothers and sisters, we need to grow in our relationship to Christ and our relationship to one another and in our relationship to the people that we're married to and spending time with at home. Let's pray that the Lord would help us do that. Father, gracious Father, we pray, Lord, that you would make us patient people, a people who don't want everything at once, who understand that anything that can be had quickly and easily usually is not worth it. I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you more deeply, that we would uh, be willing to put our passions on hold when it comes to our, our sexual relationships, that we would understand sex is something that's meant to be enjoyed, but enjoyed within marriage. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to make wise decisions. But above all, Lord, help us. Help us to close with Christ, to seek after the beloved. And, O oh Lord, to not be satisfied until we know him as he knows us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.